You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is the first full day on the job for Colorado's Governor Jared Polis. But not just him. A slate of new statewide office holders have now been sworn in. Attorney General, Treasurer, and Secretary of State. Repeat after me. I, Jenna Marie Griswold. I, Jenna Marie Griswold. Do swear. Do swear. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. Jenna Griswold is the first Democrat to be elected to this office in 60 years. This is an office that oversees everything from election security to business registration. Griswold grew up in Estes Park. She was a voting rights attorney in the Obama administration. This is her first time in elected office. And Secretary Griswold, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. How did that feel? How does it feel hearing it again? Well, it, it feels great. I'm honored to be Colorado Secretary of State. And uh, I was had a great first day and an even better second day being here with you to well, talk about our vision for the office. That's very kind. Um, I understand you wore a white pantsuit. And I'm not in the habit of asking about the sartorial choices of our guests unless there's a real story there. So what's the story behind the white pantsuit? Well, we just we're in the 100th anniversary from the passage of the 19th Amendment. And I think it's really important to look how far the nation has come, but also really to focus on where we need to go. Uh, Just this last election, we can look toward Georgia, Florida, North Dakota, North Carolina, to see that the fight for civil rights and for voting rights is not over. Uh, And that's what I hope to do. One of the things I hope to do as Secretary of State is make sure that we have the most accessible elections in the nation and a democracy that all Coloradans can believe in. Okay, and that pantsuit was an embodiment of this vision, I guess? Yeah, so the, the white represents the suffragists and all the women who vote for voting rights. Um, So we were uh, doing a a call out to all the women who fought for all of our rights. But again, it's it's not only about women's rights. It's about all of our civil rights and our voting rights. Okay, election security certainly looms large with a presidential election next year. What are Colorado's vulnerabilities right now? Well, to start with, we have some of the securest elections in the nation, uh, and we are secure as of today. But with any type of cybersecurity, uh, the cyber attacks are always moving. They're shifting. So we have to make sure that we're innovating with the potential attacks. How do you do that? How do you, in in a way, keep ahead of something? Well, we have the best IT team of any elections elections division in the nation. That's first. Uh, We do tests. We have partnerships with Department of Homeland Security. And I'll tell you what, um, I've been really focused on election security. I want to make sure that 2020 continues to have uh, above-the-board elections that are are secure to have all of our voices heard. And one of the things I've been really surprised about is at my second meeting, so first official meeting with Department of Homeland Security to discuss our election security was actually canceled because of the Trump shutdown. So uh, regardless, we are... To put it in perspective, that means that we've already talked to DHS before assuming office, and and we're going to continue to have. But that second meeting was canceled. It was canceled. Uh, Is Colorado's system being attacked daily, and it's just that we're fending those attacks off, or what? Most systems are being attacked daily. Uh Uh, So we have, look, I could go down a list of things that I literally have a list of 20 things that we're doing that other states aren't doing. Uh, We have. Give us one of them. Well, penetration testing. We actually 
actually try to hack our own systems to see where the vulnerabilities are. Uh, and it's not only the Secretary of State's office trying to hack the systems. We asked DHS to hack the systems. They did it last year. We're unable to do it that. We ask private companies to try to infiltrate our systems. We also try to find whether systems have already been penetrated and to see if there's any uh, bad actors within the system. It's called a hunt. Uh, and in all the hunts we've done, and the Department of Homeland Security has done, they have not found anything of major concern. You say that we're the only state doing some of that? Well, one of the only states. Okay. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk about automatic voter registration, because this was a theme of your campaign as a way to get more people to vote. What, what exactly is automatic voter registration? So it's shifting the burden from opting in to voting or to registering to vote, I should say, to opting out of registering to vote. So, for example, at the DMV, when you go to the DMV now, and this is something that was set up under my predecessor, uh, the DMV worker will say, I'm going to sign you up to vote unless you want to opt out. Uh, So that's already working. We really want to tighten how the DMV system is working right now and then expand outwards from the DMV system. Uh, You know, younger people living in big cities are driving less and less. Uh, I I think that we can expect driverless car technology over the next decade. So it's it's a a focal point of mine that government should meet people where they are, and they may be decreasingly not at the DMV. So the the DMV might be a quaint... A vestige of an automobile age, but where else would you where else would you uh, meet expand. the voter? Yeah, sure. So the the first natural place to expand uh, is actually Connect for Health Colorado and places that offer Medicaid services. And the reason for that is because those uh, locations are already collecting whether or not someone who's using the systems is a citizen or not. So it's a place in government already asking, hey, are you a citizen or are you not a citizen and verifying that? Mm. And then we can ask the people who are, yes, I'm a citizen. I'm getting enrolled on on the state health care platform. Ask them if they want to opt out of being registered to vote. Connect for Health is the exchange. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Medicaid users in Colorado, it's about 22 percent of Coloradans. So we're touching a lot of people if we're able to expand in that way. I just want to note that Republicans in the state Senate are concerned about some of the staff you're hiring. Uh, The accusation is that you've chosen political operatives. Senator Jerry Sonnenberg is quoted in a press release as saying, Jenna Griswold has sent a strong signal that as Secretary of State, she's going to prioritize politics over free and fair elections. What's your response? Well, look, uh, the reason I ran and I was very clear on the campaign trail is that I believe that every eligible person, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat or an independent, should have access to accessible and secure elections. That's why I ran. That's how I will operate as Secretary of State. But are there super uber Lefty people that you're hiring that indicate that this won't be universally applied? Uh, no, there are people who have worked in on Democratic campaigns, but they all have a history of working across the aisle. Uh, my deputy secretary of state is coming from Common Cause, which is a, a nonpartisan NGO focused on democracy issues. And I want to say, look, uh, I'm, I'm disappointed with this release because when it comes to our democracy, Colorado is not focused and Coloradans are not focused on partisan politics. And what I do hope is that the senators are able to focus on solutions and can leave the partisan attack so that we make sure that we're building a democracy in Colorado that all Coloradans can believe in. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Jenna Griswold. She was just sworn in as Colorado's secretary of state. And uh, her office is in charge of all kinds of things in Colorado. 
Uh, that is not just election security, but also new business registration. And you've said you want to make it easier for people to launch their own businesses. Colorado has seen huge growth in new business formation, I'll say. What do you think gets in the way of even more growth? Well, you know, uh, folks who have never opened a business before may not know how to. Uh, you know, I, I grew up very working class in Estes Park. Um, I'm first person in my family to Such go Such an to... interesting place to grow up, yeah, Estes Park. Yeah, uh, and to share a little bit of my background that may be unique is that we grew up on food stamps. We grew up going to food banks. Um, I'm the first person in my family to go to four-year college and law school. Uh, and so I know that there's a lot of people who, like me, are opening businesses for the first time uh, in and they should not have to contract. I'm a lawyer. New business owners should not have to hire a lawyer to open a business. So what I would like to do. Do they is, do that often now? Well, I'm not sure that they hire lawyers, but a lot of times it's easy to be noncompliant when you're opening your business huh. because government uh, is not streamlined for new business owners. We want to make sure that when you open your LLC that you know you have to uh, opt in or out of unemployment, of workman's comp. Look, if you're located in, in the county of Denver, you have to do some registration with the county. Uh, I live up in Louisville. You don't have to do registration there. Uh, so what I don't want is red tape to uh, tangle up new business owners and then at the end of the day, um, they be hit with big fines because government is too bureaucratic. I've certainly heard from the previous administration, the Hickenlooper administration, the desire to get rid of red tape. You think that there's still red tape to to tear down, huh? I think there's governmental bureaucracy and citizens expect government to be streamlined. Um, it often is not. So we have to continue to work across agencies to provide solutions and good platforms for to the people of Colorado. Okay. I wonder how closely you have worked and will work with Governor Polis. What have your conversations been like? Well, I'm really excited to work with Governor Polis. Um, You know, one of the the major reasons uh, that I ran outside of expanding access to elections is campaign finance reform. Uh, And and I I think Governor Polis is excited about campaign finance reform. This is a governor who spent millions of his own dollars to run for office. Uh, That's right. So campaign finance reform is, is about making sure that we stop dark secret hidden money. It's about stopping secret political contributions. Uh, And at the end of the day, it's about strengthening our democracy. Look, we can expand access to the ballot, but we need to make sure that Coloradans' voices are not getting drowned out by secret political spending. But doesn't Citizens United, to some extent, uh, tie your hands in this regard? Well, Citizens United uh, prevents us from stopping money, but we can shine sunshine onto secret political spending so that Coloradans know who's trying to influence their elections and how they're trying to do it. Is that something that you have to work with the legislature to achieve? Uh, I can do some by rulemaking, some by legislation. Um, I'd like to see a a big legislative package for campaign finance reform so that we're a national leader. Uh, And I I think Coloradans and and most legislators that I've spoken with are are very supportive of making sure political spending is transparent. And I'm optimistic we're going to have a a great legislative session uh, for campaign finance reform. Jen, it's nice to meet you. Thanks for stopping by. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Jenna Griswold is Colorado's new Secretary of State. Unaffiliated voters are the largest voting bloc in Colorado. There are more of them than Democrats and Republicans, respectively. And this week, count one more for the unaffiliateds. Former Republican lawmaker and occasional CPR News political analyst Rob Whitwer, he announced his switch on Twitter. His thread is a reflection on the state of politics, and here is some of what it said. Becoming an independent 
is not a protest against the GOP so much as a recognition that the major parties have morphed into a malignant duopoly whose primary function is to amass power by dividing Americans against one another. This is immoral and unsustainable. He goes on, when winning is the only objective, ends justify the means. Our pathological inability to get along is a national suicide pact. We are actually to the point that if one party came up with a cure for cancer, the other party would find a way to condemn it. Then Whitwer offers a ray of hope. The good news is that the rugged, hardworking, tolerant, magnanimous, gritty American spirit is still alive. We were Americans before we were Republicans or Democrats. The words of former Republican and former state lawmaker Rob Whitwer, who's an occasional CPR News political analyst and who is now unaffiliated. For the first time in history, there is a rover on the surface of the far side of the moon. This comes 50 years after U.S. astronaut Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon. But this time, China gets the glory. Our next guest believes this is the dawn of a new space age. Jack Burns is an astrophysicist at CU Boulder. Jack, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. It's good to be with you. It's not the dark side of the moon we're talking about. It's the far side of the moon. Why don't we start with the distinction there? Yeah, that's a that's a good one because there's um, a lot of confusion that's been in the media on this. Uh, the way the moon is structured, um, it, it is what we call tidally locked. That is, one side of the moon is always facing towards the Earth. The other side is facing away. But the moon is still orbiting around the Earth and the Earth-Moon system are going around the sun. That means that all sides of the moon uh, receive an equal amount of daylight and an equal amount of uh, of darkness. Mm. So that corresponds to two weeks of daylight and two weeks of darkness. In total, that's a month. Okay, so it's the far side of the moon that we're talking about where China has landed this rover. There's something so romantic, maybe even a little sad about the fact that there's always a side of the moon we don't see. But uh, China lands this probe, and part of the challenge was where it landed because there's no line of sight communication on that side of the moon. How, how did China overcome that? Well, that's exactly right. And that has been the obstacle up until now. Uh, and in order to have communications, you need to put a communication satellite in orbit of the moon. Um, and it's actually in a special location called a Lagrange point, which is um, above the lunar far side. Uh, and it's able to see both the far side, that is the satellite is able to see both the far side and the Earth at the same time. So that will then allow the rover uh, and the lander on the far side to communicate directly to the Earth. That's fascinating. So you erect a satellite simply for the mission that had to be done beforehand. Exactly. And that was launched um, in September, if I remember correctly. And then that was followed a few weeks ago by the, uh, the lander um, successfully uh, emplacing itself on the surface of the far side. Okay. So what do we know about what's on the surface of the moon now and, and what data it will either collect or send to us? Well, the far side is some place we've never been to before on the surface. We've done a lot of imaging, 
uh, for decades from orbit. We do know that the far side is quite different. It's more mountainous. Hmm. Uh, there's fewer of these uh, large maria regions, which are impact craters that have been covered with ancient lava. You see a lot of that on the, the near side. That's what gives the impression of this man in the moon um, when you're looking at it from the Earth. On the far side, on the other hand, there are very few of those. We don't, as, as planetary scientists, we don't really understand why yet uh, there is that distinction. And that's one of the things that we want to probe uh, by um, doing some explorations on the far side. Are you thrilled as a human being or bummed as an American? Both, I would say, at this stage. It, it is for humankind and the advancement of science and exploration. It's great to finally, after all of these years, have a, um, a probe on the far side of the moon. It's taken way too long. But as um, an American, someone who has spent 35 years working on science case for uh, both returning to the moon and particularly for the far side, um, this could have been done by an American vehicle 30 years ago without breaking a sweat. Technologically, uh, it's not very advanced. So um, it really is a shame that – that the Chinese were the first rather than the U.S. after all the investment we've made in uh, preparing the science and exploration case. It seems to me that the president shares perhaps your disappointment because there's been a lot of talk about exploration to Mars, and it is in, in some ways political. I mean, the Obama administration ended the moon program, which had been started by the Bush administration. Uh, this is what President Trump said last year. The directive I'm signing today will refocus America's space program on human exploration and discovery. It marks an important step in returning American astronauts to the moon for the first time since 1972 for long-term exploration and use. This time, We will not only plant our flag and leave our footprint, we will establish a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars and perhaps someday to many worlds beyond. Okay, so he's not ruling out Mars by any means, but I'm interested in your perspective on this because you've served on the NASA Advisory Council, the presidential NASA transition team. Do you think it's important to have people back on Mars soon? Uh, the, the moon, you mean? Um, oh, I think, yes, I'm yes. so sorry. The moon. Um, Thank you. I was testing. No, that's, to make, that's okay. Make because, sure you were listening. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Uh, and, and getting people back on the moon, we haven't been uh, beyond low Earth orbit in nearly 50 years. So we've got to get our exploration legs going again, if you will. Um, and Mars is very, very hard. And I think some in the last administration underestimated how difficult the journey to Mars is. It certainly is a goal that we want to set, but it's not one that can be accomplished without uh, some more technology development on landing crafts uh, and dealing with the radiation environment in space. And so the moon is a logical stepping stone. It's the place where we can learn how to live and work on an alien body, and also to begin mining resources as we're going to need to do on Mars. And so you want there to be uh, increased focus on the moon because you think that it could be a springboard. 
And I'll say that China may have reached the far side of the moon, but you're leading a team to take the exploration further. So you're working on a satellite called DAPR. I love that name. It stands for Dark Ages Polar Imagery Pathfinder. Uh, the ultimate goal is to place a telescope array on the far side of the moon. What, what will that achieve? Uh, you're correct, Ryan. That is, uh, that is the goal, something we've been working on for a number of years now. Um, and this small satellite, DAPR, uh, will be the first step. Uh, and the goal for both DAPR and an array on the far side is to take advantage of the fact that the far side of the moon is quiet. It faces away from the Earth. The Earth is a very noisy place. Um, and on top of that, it has an ionosphere so that from the ground, uh, the ionosphere does not allow this low-frequency radio waves to penetrate. So we have to go into space, but we have to go into space away from the Earth where it's quiet. Hmm. That will allow us to probe for the very first time the very early universe and the hydrogen gas that surrounds the very first stars and galaxies to have formed in the universe. I'm just fascinated by the far side of the moon now, Jack. I think, I think you and I share that. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's been, it's been a strong fascination for a long time. It's a unique place in the, in the solar system in many ways. Not only is it unique for us allowed to, uh, allowing us to do cosmology, but also it's a unique history book telling us um, about the evolution of the early moon and the early Earth just before life began. Jack Burns is an astrophysicist at CU Boulder. He's working on a mission to use the far side of the moon to explore how the universe and ultimately the Earth was formed. And if the band you're in starts playing different tunes, I'll see you on the dark side. One unexpected effect of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico is a stronger sense of community. For me, Maria is the most beautiful lesson is we trust in us. This hurricane not only make a destruction, you know, they unify an entire country. So that sound comes from WNYC's daily news program, The Takeaway. The show traveled to Puerto Rico one year after Maria, and the coverage revealed that some residents want political independence from the U.S. Well, The Takeaway is coming to CPR News weekdays starting January 14th. Tanzina Vega hosts the show, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. We really appreciate it. And hi, Colorado. We're excited to be on your air. I'd love to hear more about how Puerto Rico's identity has changed. Sure. I mean, one of the things, and in full disclosure here, I am uh, Puerto Rican born in New York. Um, I do have family on the island still. So this was both a news story for me and also a pretty personal story. I think um, one of the things that stood out was this real sense of activism. There were lots of young people who had sort of woken up and realized that after Maria, there this the island had changed. And it hadn't just changed physically. It had changed people spiritually, emotionally. Um, the economics had, have, of the island have changed. And so one of the things that really stood out to us was that 
change. And and you can hear that from conservatives we spoke to. You could hear that from activists we spoke to. It really didn't matter who we talked to in Puerto Rico. The question was, this is a new beginning. There's a lot of rebuilding happening. But at the end of the day, Puerto Ricans are really feeling who they are and really grappling with the question of what do we become now? At one point during the special, you're driving down a road and you point out where your grandfather used to live in Puerto Rico. Yeah, that was strange to sort of, you know, be on this island. And my family doesn't come from, we're not a wealthy family. My grandparents who were in Puerto Rico grew up in some of the uh, poorest parts of the island. My other grandparents were in one of the parts of the island who that were inaccessible after Maria in the, in the center of the island. Hmm. And that's where they were from. So I'm really familiar with the parts of the island that are least popular, I guess you would say, uh, that are really in the interior where people really live. Live. And so driving through there and seeing the house and seeing the the streetlights still sort of flickering on and off, you know, months after Hurricane Maria, almost a year after Hurricane Maria had hit landfall, really brought home a lot of, uh, it really brought up to the surface, should I say, a lot of feelings, a lot of emotion, you know, of being this girl who would, you know, run around in, in, the, in the back of the house. And who knew that I would be, you know, decades later reporting on what had happened. So it was both a really personal and really moving piece. The Takeaway is described as a news program that focuses on the American conversation. What, what does that look like from day to day? So one of the things that I've started, uh, when I came on the show, I identified three gaps. There's a wealth gap in this country, there's a truth gap in the country, and there's an empathy gap. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to set out on this show to try and close some of those gaps. And I think conversation is the way that we do that. One of the things we wanted to have on the takeaway was a robust dialogue with our listeners to make sure that we hear them, we want their stories involved in our coverage, we don't want to talk talk at our listeners. We want to talk with our audience. And so I think that that's one of the things that we've really tried to do is not just close those uh, those gaps in our coverage, but also make sure that our listeners are an integral part of the show. Just a couple of months ago, you spoke with Wanda James, who's also been on this program. She's the first African-American woman to own a licensed cannabis dispensary. Uh, the shop is called Simply Pure. It's right here in Denver, and I wanted James told you about her family. We didn't grow up together. My brother grew up, you know, poor in, in Dallas, Texas. And to find out that my brother had received a felony for cannabis was shocking to me. To find out that my brother picked 100 pounds of cotton a day for four years disgusted me to the point of we have to talk about this. We have to change this. And the only way to change a system sometimes is work it from the inside. I'll point out that you're based in New York. How do you make sure the stories you tell don't just come from the coasts and big cities? Uh, I have a feeling that that, con- of- yeah, that that connects to the relationship you have with listeners. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I have been a national reporter before. I was a national reporter at the New York Times, which is one of the first times that I really was able to look at the country as a whole and say, okay, how do we get out of these, like you said, the coasts, right? Reporting just on New York or LA or what's happening in Miami. And not that those aren't important stories, but there's so much else happening. That really helped to give me the perspective of being able to look at stories and say, okay, well, this is happening in the news and 
we're hearing about this commodity news every day, right? Whatever the headline is. But what does that mean for someone in, in Denver? What does that mean for someone in Omaha? What does that mean for someone in New York? We've really tried to pick up reporting, local reporting uh, from a lot of our public radio affiliates and friends to make sure that we are not, you know, limiting the perspective because the country is not, you know, two cities or two coasts. There's so much more. And I think we saw that conversation really escalate after the 2016 election. So we've got a lot to talk about as a nation. We're speaking with Tenzina Vega, host of The Takeaway, a program coming to CPR News. And uh, you mentioned the empathy gap is one of the three sort of gaps you were hoping to fill. And I note that The Takeaway also has a series called America the Kind. Why don't we wrap up with what that is? What we wanted to do here was because there's this empathy gap, we really wanted to hear from people who are doing nice things for each other. Even though, in, and it could be the smallest thing, it could be the biggest thing. We talk to people who share their parking garage, right? That seems like a really small thing, but in LA, that's not such a small thing. But then we talk to people who, you know, did bigger things. So there was a one town that found out that one of the residents in the town had a, a terminal illness and was a big fan of Christmas and loved everything Christmas but might not have made it to celebrate the holidays. So the town got together and, believe it or not, put on their own Christmas. The whole community really got together for this. I even had one mom who purchased 30 Santa hats from the the store to bring and pass out. And just the look on her face when she saw it was close to 200 people walking through her yard singing Here Comes Santa Claus and yelling Merry Christmas is an image that I will never get out of my head. Just the pure joy on her face. It it was just a beautiful thing. These are the types of stories, both big and small, that literally just, like, as you say, the name of the series, America the Kind, brings a smile to my face. And what we hope is that more people will understand kindness, where it comes from, and the fact that people are actually kind. And we want people to keep spreading that. Tensina, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's really appreciated. And thanks again. And we're excited to be in Colorado. Tanzina Vega is the host of The Takeaway, a program you can hear starting next week on CPR News at 2 p.m. Monday through Thursday and 9 p.m. on Fridays. And remember that Colorado Matters is moving its morning time slot next week to 9 a.m. Let's get your feedback now in Loud and Clear. Last week, we aired our final interview with John Hickenlooper as governor, a reflection on the highlights and low points of his eight years in office. One of the darkest moments was the murder of his corrections chief and friend, Tom Clements. Hickenlooper had recruited him to reduce Colorado's reliance on solitary confinement. Ironically, perhaps, Clements was murdered by a parolee who'd just been in solitary. What's more, the governor knew the killer's family. Well, listener Joan Byrne of Denver says she was disturbed by an omission that we didn't invoke the name of the other man killed by the same parolee days earlier. That victim's name was Nathan Leon. And Joan, we also felt that he'd been overlooked, and it's why in 2017 we met his widow and his mother-in-law. One thing I didn't like was that he was referred to over and over as the pizza delivery man. He was so much more than a pizza delivery man. Nate was smart. He worked at IBM, and he was such a a unique, important individual. 
So Joan, thanks for having us invoke his name once more. Yesterday on the show, we talked about Colorado's teen vaping epidemic, and Bonnie Sumner of Woodland Park was listening. She's a longtime educator on tobacco use prevention, and she reached out to remind us of lessons from the past, dealing with big tobacco and the kinds of messages that can dissuade young people. Just hectoring kids and saying don't do it because it's bad for you and telling them all these facts, yes, you have to, but you really have to try and have them as your allies against these companies. That should be the fight. The fight should be people who care about you, parents, teachers, doctors, all the people who care about you want you to join them to fight against what we used to call big bad tobacco because it hasn't changed. Keep your feedback coming and your story ideas. You can find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. Earlier in the show, I mentioned a former Republican lawmaker who's just become unaffiliated because he believes the major parties have lost focus and now serve to divide the country. President's border wall address and the government shutdown only add fuel to the fire. Let's take a step back, though, and talk about political polarization. That word polarization implies two, the left and the right. But a recent study shows there's more nuance than that in this country, that there are, in fact, hidden tribes, seven of them along the political spectrum. The lead author of this study lives in Denver. Stephen Hawkins is research director for More in Common, a nonprofit that works around the world to reduce division in democratic societies. And we spoke in October. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me here, Ryan. You write that political polls and years of knife-edge elections have convinced many that our country has become a 50-50 society. Uh, In fact, based on a survey of about 8,000 people and many in-depth interviews, you find that there is indeed more nuance, that the U.S. has hidden tribes, and that's actually the name of your study. Will you explain what you mean by tribes? By tribes, we mean people that are alike in a lot of ways, not simply having a shared partisan identity, but really belonging to a group of people that share a worldview, that share ideas about who they are, how they should perceive the world, how they should think about America. Um, when we when we conducted this study, we pushed a lot further than just the regular issues of immigration and police brutality and um, transgender, the sorts of topics that are very common in the news today. And instead, we looked at much deeper questions about how you view gender relations, how you view parenting, your moral values. We looked at social psychology, and we found that the profile for people, especially who are the most defined on either side, had a lot more commonality in their worldview and ideology than simply their partisan positions. And so we thought that referring to tribe was a good way to kind of capture that essence. Tribe versus party Mm -hmm. uh, or tribe versus left and right, which gives you, again, this more nuanced sense. And you, you place these seven tribes on a spectrum with progressive activists on the far left and devoted conservatives to the far right. Uh, Combined, though, they are a minority, according Mm -hmm. to this study. You find that two thirds of Americans belong to something called the exhausted majority. Mm -hmm. What is the exhausted majority and and why are there so many in the exhausted majority? The exhausted majority 
represents Americans who feel that they're fatigued by politics today. They feel like their voices aren't particularly well represented by the parties or by the media. These are people who are a little bit more flexible in their political views, less ideological, ideologically rigid. And they're people who want to see a resolution to some of the division in our country. They're people who say, I want my side to listen and to find points of compromise rather than I just want them to defeat the other side. Are politicians speaking to them? Politicians have every incentive set up to not speak to the exhausted majority. The exhausted majority are less represented in primary elections. They're less represented in elections generally. They're less represented in political donors. And they're also a little bit less um, represented in social media, even in terms of political discourse. And so the incentive structure tells politicians to focus on the people who are the loudest elements on their each of on their own side, uh, when there are so many people who feel that that doesn't capture who they are and how they think. Again, these tribes grew out of the eight thousand or so folks you polled and the many interviews that you conducted as well. And as you say, these questions were beyond the basics. They were beyond party. They were beyond race and and sex or gender. And, and they got into these kind of qualitative questions about how you view parenting, about patriotism. Uh, and I, I wonder if you'd give us an example, perhaps, of someone who's in that exhausted majority. Let's mm-hmm. put a face to that group. Yeah. We spoke to a woman in Oregon who's in her 50s. Let's call her Erin for the purpose of the conversation. Okay. And she votes Democrat. She is a woman who is very much a professional. She's a veterinarian. And she is very much pro-choice and as a result cannot vote for Republicans who don't support abortion access for women. But she is deeply frustrated by what she sees as kind of the crumbling structure of family where she sees that we have gotten too weak as a society to hold ourselves to higher standards about getting a job, holding a job, being a responsible adult, enforcing our border laws. She draws a distinction between immigrants who have come to the United States intending to become American citizens, intending for their children to become American and to contribute to society through the conventional ways of employment and so on and education and learning English, and those who are coming here as a means of making a quick buck before going across the border and so on, and feeling that we have lost the appetite as a society to really take on those hard challenges. I mean, I can imagine that she feels, uh, in a way, politically homeless. Mm. Yeah, she's deeply frustrated by both parties. Let's talk more about immigration. How did you suss out people's deep feelings about an issue like immigration? By asking them about their parenting style for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Help us understand how you've tried to get a fuller picture of the electorate and of these, as you call them, hidden tribes. Mm -hmm. Well, first, we got a lot of breadth. So we asked questions about sanctuary cities. We asked questions about a border wall. We asked questions about the contributions that immigrants make to society. So we asked all the questions you would ask in an ordinary question if you're trying to understand people's perception of immigrants. One of the things we learned from that, especially in the in-depth interviews, is that people always started by drawing the distinction between people who've come here legally as intending to become an American citizen and people who come here with undocumented status. Then, after all that breadth, we analyzed it along what we can refer to as depth, which is understanding people's moral values, their parenting styles, their identity. 
One of the things that was really telling from doing that is that, especially as you move to the right on the spectrum, people really identify with being American. It's a source of enormous pride to them. They might say that they're an American before they say that they're a Christian. It's how they wake up in the morning. They feel like there's a culture and a history there that they really embody and care about. As you move to the left, people have increasingly say that they feel a bit of shame about America and its past, and they don't identify with being American as a central part of who they are. That dimension is a really important facet of the conversation about immigration because the the categories that we're referring to, citizen and non-citizen, have a lot more relevance to some people than others. And that touches on patriotism for sure. And, and even the use of that word and are you patriotic? Uh, and you find that to be very strong among traditional conservatives and devoted conservatives, less strong among progressive activists and traditional liberals. It's so interesting how that interplays with President Trump's message of make America great again. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, it seems contradictory if you've got the conservatives who vote for him saying America's great now. I'm, I'm proud of America now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is a sense um, among especially the devoted conservatives, these are the most fiercely loyal to Trump, that today, being an American citizen, your rights are less valued than those of an immigrant. They really believe that strongly. It's one of the things that distinguishes them the most from your kind of traditional conservative. And so they have a sense that society has kind of come to seek revenge against the traditional white conservative um, American Um, and that they are now turning the tables against them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a new study of the hidden tribes of America. It is an effort from a group called More in Common to bring more nuance to polarization in this country. My guest is Stephen Hawkins, who is research director for More in Common, this group that works to reduce polarization in democracies. And uh, we've talked some about how core beliefs shape our political identities. Uh, but shouldn't facts play a role too? I mean, we're in an era where basic facts are in question. The, the greenhouse gas effect, uh, whether a rash of non-citizens voted in the last election. Uh, I ran across a 2016 BuzzFeed survey of social media, and it found that right-wing Facebook pages published false or misleading information 38% of the time. Left-wing pages did so nearly 20%. Uh, Then there was a report from Harvard in 2017, uh, and it concludes that while any group can become uh, to believe false information, misinformation is currently predominantly a pathology of the right, and extreme Mm -hmm. voices from the right have been continuously attacking the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Can can facts cut through tribalism? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Well, absolutely. Facts have to continue to dominate. They have to win out. Truth has to win out. I think what we found is that, especially on the right, there's a sense that the appropriate subjects of conversation have gotten narrower. The discourse cannot go in every direction. And especially in talking about crime and talking about gender and talking about sexuality, there has been a fencing off of certain ideas, which mean that There's a suspicion that not all of the facts are on the table because on certain subjects, there's already a right position, a correct position that one has to hold morally. 
And as a result, they feel as if there could be some chance that this story that's not getting a lot of play is actually true, but the media, who are polite, who are aligned more with the left, are less likely to talk about it. I think what you're hinting at there is political correctness. Uh, and, and this is, I, I think, in part what the study finds that liberals bear some responsibility here for the nature of the national conversation. Right. Political correctness is a really challenging concept to nail down because we found that um, what some people refer to as censorship and uh, and a kind of policing of speech, other people say this is just a norm of a polite society. We're trying to avoid offending people, and that's a good instinct, not one that we should try to uh, reduce or roll back. But we did find a surprising majority of Americans expressing that they felt as if there was pressure to think a certain way on specific issues related to race and racism, especially related to Islam and Muslims and related to gender and sexuality. And we found that four out of five Americans, at least to some degree, think that political correctness is a problem in America today. So what that indicates to us is we need to reduce the kind of control over the subject matter of conversation a little bit, allow the conversation to be a little bit more free-flowing. Why don't we wrap up with the question of how to get beyond tribalism? Uh, you, you write again in this study about these hidden tribes. And what do you suggest as a way for folks across this spectrum, these seven tribes, to see each other less as caricatures? I think that's how you put it in the study. Uh, more as whole people, uh, and perhaps to get the kind of discussion started that you have alluded to there. The first I would just say is humility. Personally, I am somebody who has moved a lot around as in terms of my political identity. I started off on the right. I've shifted to the left. I've moved back and forth. And in fact, you see these tribes reflected in your own family. Even in my own family, indeed, from the left to the right. And met a lot of really decent people across the spectrum. And in this study, again, I met so many very good intentioned people across the country who just have sharply different orientations towards the world. Starting with a place of humility says, what if I'm wrong? Or at least, what if I'm not fully understanding who this person is? I think that's the great, a great starting point. Is that message being sent from the top of government, though? Not from the White House. I would say that we do not have, we have um, too much bombastic and self-aggrandizing speech from the White House, not setting the right tone. Thanks for being with us. We, it's the tip of the iceberg. Fascinating stuff, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. Stephen Hawkins of Denver is head of research at More in Common, which fights polarization. He is lead author of Hidden Tribes, a study of America's polarized landscape. We spoke in October. Finally today, music inspired by the political divide and the continental divide, the Rocky Mountains. Composer Benjamin Park wrote this piece for the Flatirons Chamber Music Festival in Boulder. It's called For Purple Mountains course, that's a reference to a line in America the Beautiful. Park wanted to explore the divide between political parties in America and express his hope for a country that will someday be more united, a little more purple. The idea of purple being a mix of red and blue and the mountains being this more metaphorical divide between us 
I wasn't going to write a piece that was going to fix that, of course, but to have a certain element of hope. Park integrated the melody from America the Beautiful. He says he heard the patriotic song at some difficult moments in his life. He sang it at his synagogue after the 9-11 terror attacks. He heard it again during the 2016 election when his rabbi asked the congregation to sing it as a display of unity. In one part of the piece, Park places the melody from America the Beautiful in a klezmer setting. You can hear more of For Purple Mountains, recorded in the CPR Performance Studio, in the Centennial Sounds podcast from CPR Classical. Find it at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been lovely to spend time with you. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm at CPR Warner on Twitter. The show is at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. <laughs>